This evening's reading from the Old Testament is from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It can be found on page 2 in your bulletin. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, for the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me in prayer? God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you, that we might see your provision of mercy in the person of Jesus Christ, and we pray that your spirit would transform us from having been in your presence. In Christ's name, amen. One of the central themes of the Bible is the idea of repentance. You see, the concept uh, actually translated in in the word turn, which appears four times. In verses 8 through 10. And repentance means to do a 360. It means to make a life turn. And that concept is not unfamiliar to us. There is no shortage of blog articles on how to turn your life around. I spent the week reading some of them five ways or 15 ways. Things like read a book every day. uh, Save your money. Learn a new skill. Accept what reality is, but then define what you want reality to be. Lots of different suggestions. And as I read them, there was something that I noticed. And that was how uh, individually and self-focused all of them were. There was very little idea of turning your life around with respect to other people. And least of all, God. Uh, Some of that I... Isn't a surprise, right? If you've lived in the West, you've lived in America, it's very individualistic. But it also says something about where our society has landed on the topic of judgment and being under judgment. Um, We have a uh, planet fitness aspiration for our culture, right? A no judgment zone. Uh, We don't like judgy people. Uh, We don't like haters. We feel free to hate haters. A little bit of an irony there. Um, 
We easily see people as existing to cheer us on and counsel and God as a life force and a life coach. And so, when you bring up this idea of repentance, the mindset I think naturally can be, I don't have much to repent of between God and other people. In fact, uh, they have no business judging me in the first place. And while moral wrong exists, it really doesn't have a lot to do with spirituality because we understand spirituality primarily as self-help. So I think all these things get in the way of us seeing repentance as relevant to this day and age. But here's the downside. When you can't repent, you never truly experience what it's like to feel clean, to feel forgiven, to feel like you have a new beginning. When repentance is only bitter and never sweet, you miss out on something that I would say authentic Christians will say is the whole reason why they're in the game. Because when I came to know this God through Jesus Christ, I experienced that I could really feel forgiven and accepted and clean. And it was by God's hand. And so statements in, this, in the Bible that say you're holy and blameless in God's sight. Or statements in the Bible that say, all fall sin, all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin, but are justified. We're declared right in God's sight. They start to be very rich and precious. Even things like this, where the Apostle Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. This place where I understand it's God's perspective on my life, freeing me from people-pleasing, from self-accusation, from condemning myself, through a whole host of things, ultimately leading us to humility. Moreover, it becomes the power to actually turn your life around. If you want to turn your life around, Jesus said, to the degree to which you have been forgiven, that will be the, the, the degree to which you can love. Forgiveness and love are bound together. And so in this passage on repentance and judgment, I want to look at what turns a life. And we'll look at the catalyst, what's the spark plug that God uses, and the evidence, the catalyst and the evidence. First of all, the catalyst, which are judgment and grace. Uh, and now we return to our account of Jonah. It's taken him a little bit to get to Nineveh, if you've been following. Uh, Jonah hears the word of God. It's virtually the same commandment repeated. Jonah gets a divine redo. He was supposed to go to Nineveh and preach. He ignores God's word. He's not happy about that commandment. He seeks to run from God. He experiences a very severe mercy where he almost dies and is vomited back to life. If you want to know what that means, you'll have to read the story. And God says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, Nineveh is referred to great a few times in the book of Jonah. And there's a few different meanings for it. One, it was an impressive city. It had impressive public parks. It had impressive uh, botanical gardens. 
It had an impressive zoo. Not unlike our city, right? I mean, it wasn't that long across. And when it talks about three days' journey, it wasn't like, well, it's sort of like D.C. It doesn't take that long to get across, save the traffic, right? Which is, well, there's never not traffic. So it always takes a long time to get across. But likely, Jonah had to preach in different places. And so he entered the city, probably with the protocol where you go and see the city leaders to make sure you have permission to go. May have brought some gifts, which was custom that time. And then he sets out into his first day to begin to preach the gospel. And we're told he called out and said, yet 40 days Nineveh shall be, over, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, you might hear that and go, wow, it sounds like he just brought the heat, the fire and not the water. But as I said before, in this sort of literature, we're just getting a summary of what he said. How do we know that? Well, the king himself reflects it. The king himself talks about the mercy of God. He says, who knows, maybe this God will forgive us. Where did he get that? Well, he got it from Jonah's preaching, which started here and bubbled all the way up. And his response is this. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And in that, we get the two aspects of the catalyst for a life turn. The first one is judgment, right? The king recognizes that we, he freely admits, he doesn't justify himself. He says, we have done evil and we're an evil society. And the Assyrians had a reputation for that. They had a brutal reputation at that time in history. And so he acknowledges judgment. In uh, the great abolitionist, Frederick Douglass's autobiography, he recounts uh, his grandmother's life and how she spent her life in bondage as a slave. And when she was no longer useful, her master sent her off to die alone. And Douglas said, will not a righteous judgment visit for these things? We have that question in our life. Will there not be a righteous judgment visited upon the person that exploited and abused the young woman? For the person that has exploited and used the elderly person and built them out of their retirement for the dictator who erases a people group because of his pride. Who of us wouldn't say, is there not a day for that? In fact, you've got this uh, interesting two-for-one going where the word, same word that's used in Hebrew for evil and wrath are linked together. Both man's human reaction and God's response to that thing, they go hand in hand. Repentance must include this sense that God has a, has a right to judge me. The king himself says, God has a right to be fiercely angry. I was reading an article recently in the Washington Post by Tom Terrence. Some of you may know Tom. He was president of the C.S. Lewis Institute for many years. He's a friend of this congregation. He's been a friend of mine since the beginning. And uh, it was actually the second article I'd seen in the Post about him. The first was in 1993. And if you know his story, Tom was a notorious member of the Ku Klux Klan. The FBI had referred to him as a mad dog killer. 
He planted uh, many bombs in the homes of Jewish families and was on his way to do one when he was caught. He goes on to say, my first, my first year in prison, I was just mad. And so I read things like Mein Kampf. <laughs> you know, I read Hitler. I read people that fueled that anger. And then I was introduced to Greek philosophy, and then I was introduced to the Bible, and two ideas hit me. One is that the unexamined life isn't worth living. If, I'm not, if I don't have the courage to look at my soul and where it's fallen, is it really a life anyway? But the other thing he says is I came to understand that truth exists independently from what I believe. That's a radical statement today. Truth exists independently of what I believe. Um, He's saying that there is a capital T truth that we must have in our life if we're ever going to truly understand repentance and judgment. He wasn't the only one that thought so. Uh, Dr. King, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, which uh, many of us read Uh, this past year together. He said this, a just law is a man-made code that squares with God's law. What is he acknowledging there? That whatever standard you and I have by which we live, and I would say Christians, we have to ask ourselves, is the standard by which I live kind of what I accept of what God says and then what I think is right, just what I go with my gut? That seems to me to be the going standard even within the church. But whatever standard you have, the question is, do you have something above it? Because if you don't have something above it by which you're weighing it, how do you know it's just? How do you know it's right? And how will you repent when it's not? And so Christians are called into this relationship where Uh, God has spoken, we believe that God isn't silent, and he has spoken in a way where we can actually evaluate our lives and look at our lives. But it's not just the word of judgment and law. It's also the word of grace, a catalyst of grace. The king says, who knows whether God will show mercy? He had, be, he had begun to hear about this God who is prone to show grace and forgiveness. And if he would have known a bit more of the Bible, he would have known that God actually made promises. And if he lived in our day and age, after the coming of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise, and asked, is there mercy? Who knows? Could God forgive me for the violence in my heart? Could God forgive me for the gossip? Can God forgive me for my bitterness? Can God forgive me for my day-to-day lust to consume people? Can God forgive me for my aloofness? Can God show mercy? The answer would be yes, 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 yes. That's what we learn through Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes. Jesus Christ was sent expressly to be the judgment bearer for all who repent unto him, who all say, God, I can't make it by my own standard. 
And this is what the Bible means when it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. God's mercy begins to facilitate repentance. And maybe that's not where you're at, but maybe one of the ways that God is trying to get you there are the circumstances of your life. The Assyrians had been through some hard times. Just before Jonah comes, they were enduring famine. There was infighting, national infighting. There were plagues. And so, through hardship, God begins to bring them low. He begins to put them in a position. If you ask the question, you know, the modern mind is, well, frankly, we're, we tend to be proud. And we say, well, why did Jesus go to the poor? Well, he must have went there because, of course, they're not educated and sophisticated. Or he went there because they had been humbled enough through life's experiences that they no longer deceived themselves. Which is why he had success among people that had faced hard times in life. And Jonah can barely get preaching, right? I mean, he can barely get into his message. And remember, he didn't like these people. He had racial problems with them. He had ethnic problems with them. He had national problems with them. I don't think it's by chance that God said, deliver the message I give you. Not the message that maybe you want to bring. But he can hardly get out of it. It's like that Jerry Maguire moment. Right? You know, where Tom Cruise comes in to bring his big apology. And his wife responds, you had me at hello. You had me at hello. The Ninevites are like, you had me at repent. He only gets a day into it. You know, you had me at the grace of God. Now the question will be later, will they persevere in that faith? But that same question is on Jonah and Israel and on you and I. Will ongoing repentance be evidence of softness to the grace of God? Which brings us to the last point, evidence. The catalyst is the, great, the judgment and grace of God. But the evidence, and let me mention four things. The first evidence is an increasing ability to repent. Uh, I think many Christians and many churches feel like their chief call and skill is to be uh, look good in front of the world. That the job of the church is to uh, be good to some degree, but look good in front of the world. And it really works against you, if that's your understanding. You know, uh, take for an example, uh, there was an uh, article in the paper recently about uh, sexual abuse in the church, the Protestant church. And the organization that we had come and train us uh, showed up uh, called the Grace Organization was actually listed in this Washington Post article. And you can imagine how this sort of thing has happened. There is a church, and the church culture in its mind says, we're supposed to be better than the world. We're supposed to be good. And so when something really reprehensible and evil happens, the response is, we've got to cover this up. Because we're supposed to be good, better than the world. But that's actually not the mark. Christians are not called to be sinless. They're called to be able to repent. That's actually supposed to be one of the unique things that Christians can do. That the grace of God enables them to repent. I was having a conversation with uh, Brian, who's on our church staff, and he reminded me of a quote by Tim Keller, or a thought by Keller, where he said, 
non-religious or irreligious people usually aren't concerned in repenting at all. It's not on the radar. Religious people focus on sins to repent of, the bad things to repent of. But Christians, followers of Christ, repent of their righteousness. They repent of their goodness. And so they can actually be free. One of the joys of the gospel is repentance becomes actually a good word. In a marriage, it becomes, hey, we can repent to each other. Uh, Kids actually hear from their mom and dad, I I need to repent to you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? So first of all, an evidence is the ability to repent. Second of all, an evidence is a repentance that bypasses status. Uh, We read, and the people of Nineveh believed God, the greatest of them to the least of them. You see, the danger that happens when you and I begin to see our identity built in the position we have and the title we have and the money we have and all that stuff that we talk about What happens in your mind is, I can't repent because I've got too much to lose, and what would people think? There's this idea of, you know, I I can't do that. And behind that, there are two things. One is self-importance. You know, I can never repent because uh, too many people are depending upon me, or, you know, look who the world thinks I am. There's this idea of self-importance that infects us. Uh, Thomas Watson once said in his book on repentance, It is better that men should reproach you for repenting than that God should damn you for not repenting. A willingness to say, I I won't fear men. But a second thing is we misread our success. Uh, When you start to get successful in the world, what happens is uh, you begin to think that uh, somehow this is because you've attained VIP status in heaven. You know, things are are working your way for a reason because you've figured out life and you're doing it in the right way. And so the response is, well, you know, this is a small thing compared to what I've accomplished and what I've done. And so status gets in the way, and this is where Jesus is so critical, because there you have Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and Jesus who does extraordinary things. I mean, you don't find his critics debating that he did miracles. They critiqued him for other things. You know, he created a worldwide movement that's still going on today, global movement, cross You know, I could go on and on about the greatness of Jesus, but the thing that's stunning about him, although he was the lawgiver, he came under the law. He was born, the reason he was born and lived 30 years because God wanted him to have to live under his laws so that he might prove his faithfulness and be a worthy savior so he would have something to give you. Not just give you forgiveness, but he's going to give you his righteousness. And once you know God has infinite love and forgiveness for me. And and in this amazing way, because he sees me through his son, I am righteous in his sight. Repentance just begins to flow. It becomes a discipline. Something that you're free to do. So bypasses status. Thirdly, repentance becomes the fruit of justice. The king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Uh, The king is able to see from where he is that this violence thing isn't just a one-off, like we have a crime problem. We've got a systemic problem here with violence. 
And so repentance has the ability to not just see my moral failings in a one-off sort of way, but begins to see how sin and evil functions in systemic ways to hurt a society. Uh, I was given a book by someone in our congregation before my sabbatical, uh, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I've seen him like three times on TV. This book is amazing. I mean, his story is just, I can't even comprehend his story. But he's a great writer. And he's talking about growing up in apartheid. And he says, before apartheid, uh, the main people that were educating folks were European missionaries. And yes, they had an agenda westernized, but at least they taught across the board history, science, math. They taught everything. But when apartheid came, and he said, you could actually link the leaders of South Africa, Mandela and um, Biko, Stephen Biko, they had been educated under missionaries. But when apartheid moves in, what happens is this. They create these Bantu schools, and they only begin to teach agriculture and metrics. Their their, uh, effort is to cripple the black mind so it can't excel beyond. Basically, Noah says uh, they basically wanted to teach us how to count potatoes in, in till soil. See, that's an eye that says racism isn't just someone wrote something nasty on a wall or someone said a bad word, but it's able to step back and go, something is functioning in society here. So repentance is able to look beyond the one-off. You see this in the story of Zacchaeus, if you want a story. The tax collector who repents and does fourfold what he's supposed to. But here's the problem we face. We're giving mixed messages to our children and mixed messages to society. So, for instance, what are the two dominant messages you and I hear all the time? The first one is uh, society teaches you to live for yourself and live for your dreams and live for your desires. On the other hand, it tells you care about justice. Those two things don't work together. They can't work together. The one basically says... Uh, I need to live for myself. And the other one says, I need to care for others. The one is relativism. The other is righteousness. Justice inevitably is going to mean self-denial. It maybe is going to mean I don't get my dream. I can't pursue my dream. I give up my dream because my dream becomes other people's dreams. My dream becomes that the son of God's dream for me was he became like a slave that he might lift me up that I might flourish. And so, the fruit of justice, repentance works a different sort of justice in the Christian community. Lastly, though, it's a repentance that begins to produce great compassion. This is the other sense in which Nineveh is a great city. The reason it is a great city is because God says it has lots of image bearers in it. Lots of people that he made and created. I mean, Jonah doesn't know who's in the city, doesn't care who's in the city. In chapter 5, God will tell you what the population count is. That's how well he knows the city. And the reason it is a great city is because he has compassion and cares about how the wickedness is destroying them, not only temporally, but spiritually and eternally. And when they repent of that wickedness, what happens? He doesn't say, you're on probation. He doesn't say, well, this is what I want you to go through to prove. 
He relents. He shows mercy to them. And so the grace of repentance means a couple things. One, I think it means, just for our purposes, we care about the city. Why does God care about the city? Because there's a lot of people in it. People that I might disagree with, people that I don't like, people that I wish didn't move here in the first place, people I wish didn't live here in the first place, on and on and on. Non-Nats fans. I mean, there's lots of things, right? But we're to care. And, and so we're put in this place, and it's been a prayer of mine. And maybe you'll join me in this prayer. Because, in, and it hits me more, I think, because um, my job description is I'm supposed to be compassionate. I'm supposed to care about people. You know, I helped start a church that the motto is in and for the city. And yet, I find it so easy, you know, uh, my busyness, my tiredness, my full plate, so much, my concern, so much is going on, to have very little compassion for my neighbor. You know, little compassion for the city. And what begins to free me from that is I go deeper into the grace of God and I realize, you know, all that stuff that I just named is really just me trying to justify myself. It's really me just trying to prove myself. All my fretting and worrying and all the things we burden. And when we begin to to, to really dive deep into the grace of God, we get to this place where we slow down and we begin to notice this is a great city not because of the monuments, not because of the sports teams, and not because of the uh, you know, uh, Michelin restaurants, and not because it's the seat of power, uh, not any of that. It's a great city because there are people in desperate need of grace here, in desperate need of the gospel. That's our definition of a great city. And God means to show us how great his grace is toward this city. Let's pray he even uh, outdoes us, outdoes Nineveh with Washington. Will you pray with me? Thank you for uh, introducing the idea to us, Lord, that repentance can be sweet, that repentance can be power, that repentance can bear fruit, that repentance can be something that actually is joyful. And in it, Lord, uh, you're going to need to show us stuff we don't want to see. And it may even be we need to feel the threat of judgment. But we pray, O oh God, that you would bear fruit of grace in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.